This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, are those diversity trainings actually working? And what the heck is an NFT? All right, let's start the show. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. So the last year or so has been full of headlines about racial reckonings. Corporations and entire industries having to deal very publicly with racism and sexual harassment. It's led to a lot of staff shakeups, a lot of stories of pretty bad behavior, and a lot of growth in one particular industry. My next guest has worked for a few years in a field with which many of you likely have had firsthand experience. I call it affectionately or inaffectionately, I guess, the DEI industry, and I capitalize all those letters. DEI. It stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Part of that work is those diversity trainings you sometimes have to go to at your job. That industry, DEI, it makes billions of dollars. It's a collection of folks who are in various different industries. They work in HR. They work in the legal profession. Some of them are like myself. They're academics. And they're all kind of under this umbrella of working toward organizational equity. It is an incredibly nebulous definition. That is the voice of Kim Tran. She is an author and consultant, and she recently wrote an article for Harper's Bazaar all about the DEI industry. In that piece, she noted that since the death of George Floyd last summer and the protests and racial reckonings it started, interest in DEI jobs has surged 30 percent. I mean, I'd agree. You know, after that bombshell interview with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and Oprah, even the royal family said it's going to hire its own DEI consultant. But here's the thing. Kim Tran's article about DEI, it is called The Diversity and Inclusion Industry Has Lost Its Way. In the article, Kim writes about how anyone, literally anyone, can call themselves a DEI consultant. Many universities offer expensive certificate programs. But there is no central governing body for DEI and no common understanding of what the field is or what they're actually supposed to do. And the way you measure success with DEI, there are many differing definitions of that success. In the last year, Kim Tran says those problems, they have become too big to ignore. So then in this industry, which is humongous and growing, but also without anyone really in charge, you (laughs) say that this diversity and inclusion industry has lost its way Why do you think it's lost its way? Tell me. Because it started in a really amazing place. And then it became this multi-billion dollar juggernaut. When diversity, equity, inclusion began, it was in response to the quote-unquote affirmative action call by JFK. We hope in the next few days to have an executive order forthcoming, which will strengthen the employment opportunities both in and out of the government for uh, all Americans. And uh, it will be followed as time goes on with other actions by the federal government to expand employment uh, possibilities. And that was in response to the black American civil rights movement. 
Mm-hmm. You had a lot of change happening around the same time. You had the Civil Rights Act. You had the Voting Rights Act. You had, you know, these calls for affirmative action. And what happened was companies got really scared of litigation. Yeah. So they create a whole bunch of trainings um, and a whole bunch of people to do these trainings. And most of the time, those folks are housed in human resources. But they're not the people who actually created this idea of racial justice or equity or equality. And they aren't the ones doing the hiring in many of these instances. Oh, my gosh. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'm rooted in movement work. My mom says I was three years old at my first protest. My mom is a big union person. So I grew up going to these union process and knowing that if you want real change in the workplace for women of color, for people of color, for queer folks, you're going to have to have a collective voice. But diversity, mm. equity, inclusion functions outside of that context almost always. What we're mm. actually seeing is people who are like organizational psychologists, people scientists who come in, they crunch the numbers, and then they talk to people at the executive level about what equity will take. There is no Mm. conversation happening with the rank-and-file people who are experiencing the brute force of inequity in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. If you had to name the three biggest problems with the diversity, equity, inclusion industry as we know it today, what are they? Unaccountable, using the wrong metrics, um and hyper-focused on interpersonal solutions. Mm, Like, just be nice to your cubicle mate, and that'll fix this thing. Yeah. Instead of, like, this whole structure might need to be reworked. Yeah, that's not going to work. If all of the people in an organization that is structurally inequitable just take a a note on how to be more inclusive in meetings, that's actually not going to change very much. We have to create much broader change at a policy level. Yeah. You mentioned in your laundry list of three biggest problems, this like, what is a measure of success? How do you measure it? You know, the metrics. Does the DEI industry have any objective measures of success right now? They do, some of them do. Some of the folks who do this have decent ways of figuring out who's, you know, actually accomplishing this project of equity. And one of the ways that folks count that's really successful, and I do this, I'll say I do this too, I over-index or focus a lot of my attention on marginalized people. That's the thing that's going to lead the, mar- the data for me, right? Like yeah. if I went into your organization, you had 500 employees, 400 of them are white and 100 are marginalized people of color. Mm. What you'd get at the end is probably that the organization's doing well, right? Because mm. all, the, all the white folks are happy. You have no idea how the people of color are doing in terms of that pocket of small folks. And this is the same thing over and over again with trans employees. If you don't have a a finger on the pulse of what it's like to be trans in your organization, that experience is going to get lost in the wider sea of data because it's not it doesn't rise the level of statistical significance. Yeah. Well, and it's like. Isn't the whole point of DEI meant more to help those who are most marginalized not to be there to, I don't know, allow the majority to kind of pat themselves on the back for going to that training and answering the quiz, right? Yeah. So this, a lot of DEI feels like performative allyship. I went to the training and then I put the hashtag up and then we did a pride month and everybody feels great about the work. There's actually this really funny saying um, about diversity, equity, and inclusion and that it goes something like it's about food, 
fun and flags. It's like Black History huh. Month, Asian <laughs> History Month, potlucks, and film screenings. But what it, it winds up yeah. losing in that trajectory, right, is that it's actually about inequity. It's actually about injustice. And it's about how we really get deep in those problems and fix them. That's where it started. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's so funny hearing you say that because now I'm thinking like, oh, my God, every Pride Month, I am bombarded <laughs> with vodka, because yeah. that's how these companies say they love the gays. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I'll take the free absolute. But right. uh, what are we really talking about here? <laughs> I was just about to say absolute is one of the biggest progenitors and culprits of this. They, they got the rainbow bottle every year. And don't get me wrong. When I see a queer and trans flag somewhere, I do feel safer. Right. That's important. And when I see free vodka anywhere, I do feel a little bit happier. <laughs> Absolutely. You want to give me a free bottle of wine with a rainbow sticker on it? I will take it. Absolutely. Me yeah. and my partner yeah. and our dog. Um, <laughs> but is that the end? Because I, mm. I am a queer person of color in the workplace. I experience as an Asian American LGBTQ person around 70 percent of us are reporting workplace discrimination. If you're black mm. and LGBTQ, you're experiencing 50% workplace mm. discrimination. I need something more than a rainbow flag. Come on. Yeah. So what diversity, equity, and inclusion tactics actually work best? <laughs> One of the things that I want us to do, and it's imperative upon us to do, is to change the kind of ladder of who we're accountable to, right? If the problem is that we're accountable to people who sit in the top echelons of power, we need to reroute that accountability to folks who are most marginalized. So like, does your janitorial staff sit in your ERGs? Do the cleaners, do the cafeteria workers, are they involved? Because they should be involved in dictating what it is that they need and want from y'all. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so often this work is siloed. It's like external, it's third party, but then it is accountable to people who are the CEO or the, you know, top HR people. And yeah. well, because it's like secretly focused on avoiding litigation. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. that's why it's focused on the top, because those are the folks that deal with litigation for the company. And HR is doing its job. And I want to be very clear about that because HR is meant to make us more productive and protect the company from litigation. So HR is there for a very specific function. It was never really meant to do this. Hmm. You know, there are going to be a lot of folks who hear this chat who might be involved in diversity and inclusion work in their workplaces, who take it seriously, who believe in it, who have their hearts in the right places and want it to work. And they're hearing the two of us talk and they're saying to themselves, <gasps> Oh, my God. Am I getting this all wrong? Am I actually part of the problem? Should I just stop because I really screwed it up? And my thing about inclusion work is I want as many people who want to be involved in it to be involved in it. How do you tell folks what they're doing is wrong, fix it, without scaring them off? Yeah, I know a lot of folks are going to be hearing that song on TikTok, that Oh No song in their heads right now. <laughs> yeah. And... I don't think that we necessarily need to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to diversity, mm. equity, and inclusion. And I say that because I'm an optimistic person, because I believe that there can be a bridge from one to the other. There can be a bridge mm. from movements 
to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's just not what exists right now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So what I want you to do is for those feelings to create some sort of change in the way that you do diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm asking for folks to actually push beyond what exists. Come on. I'm loving this. One small thing all of us in our offices or workspace can do tomorrow to advance this work. A little thing. A daily thing. Ask who's not at the table. Um, Yeah. And I'll say this about myself. I'm a marginalized person in the workplace. I'm a queer Vietnamese woman. I have the same pay gap as black women. I can say all that. And at the same time, I can say, I have an advanced degree. There are people who listen to what I say. And the person who's not in this room with me having this conversation about equity is the person who empties the trash cans, is the person Mm. who fixes my computer when it falls apart. Mm. Who is not there? And it's not just the people who work in the office. It's the entire network of folks. We have to also be accountable to them. Thanks again to Kim Tran. She's an anti-racist author and consultant. And she is at work on a book called The End of Allyship. Coming up, what is an NFT? I call up two tech reporters and have them explain. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. On NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we talk about TV, movies, and more, like the new Marvel Disney Plus series, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and a definitive ranking of the best Muppets. All of that in around 20 minutes every weekday. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And right now, I want to talk about a thing that has been on my mind for the last few weeks. A different kind of acronym. I'm talking about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. If you watched SNL last weekend, you might have seen their NFT sketch. Now what the hell's an NFT about? 
much money. Can you please explain what's an NFT? I said, what the hell's Now, if you're like me, you perhaps have heard a lot about NFTs, but you may not really understand them. Because honestly, I'm still confused. Son, I didn't understand a word you just said. Which is why this week I called up some friends to help explain the world of NFTs. Okay, so an NFT, first of all, stands Bobby's like, I got for... it. <laughs> That's Bobby Allen and Aaron Griffith. Bobby's a tech reporter for NPR, and Aaron's a tech reporter for The New York Times. So, like, fungible, like, a $10 bill can be exchanged for, like, two $5 bills. That's perfectly fungible. A non-fungible yes. thing is very unique. You can't exchange it one for one for anything else. And a token just refers to, basically, there's this thing called the blockchain, which is, like, this... Uh, ledger that is sort of overseen by a network of computers. It's like a unique token, um, an identifier on this blockchain. So th- that description probably does nothing to help you understand what an <laughs> NFT is. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to let our other panelists okay, go ahead, in a second to add to that. But I'm going to add first to jump on that a little bit. There is a line from a New York Times piece that I found a little helpful. The Times said of NFTs, quote, NFTs are essentially a way to transform a digital good that can be endlessly copied into something one of a kind. When someone buys an NFT, what they're effectively getting is the knowledge of owning an official version of a cat with a Pop-Tart body, <laughs> a song, a video clip of a basketball dunk, or another virtual thing. Aaron, does yes. that... That, add to this. Help us that out. is well, yes, that is that is what uh, my publication said, and that, and that is accurate. I mean, I think the the easiest way to explain, or, so everything Bobby said is is correct, but you don't necessarily need to know what fungible or non fungible means. You don't really need to have a great understanding of like what the blockchain is really doing here. All you need to know is that before digital media was generally not worth very much because you can Uh steal it and share it and copy it very easily. And now with the power of the blockchain, (laughs) um, we are able to make these pieces of digital media, be it a song, an image, a GIF, a video, unique and individual and scarce. And that's what gives it its value. And so we have turned digital media into something that's collectible. Collectible, though, but it's like, okay, so I'm seeing a bunch of folks buying artwork as NFTs. Uh, Ja Rule sold his Fire Festival (laughs) oil painting as an NFT for $122,000. Is it ever worth that much? It's a thing that lives like on your device. You can't hang it on your wall. Yeah. Just to be clear, the Ja Rule thing is a little bit of a mind bender because he's selling a physical good and the whole point is that this is supposed to be about digital things so there are a lot of people that have jumped into this and and they're not really using the thing that this Wait, is supposed it was a physical to... thing and not a digital thing it we was, got a scratch yeah. job from this conversation oh my goodness there's a okay. there's a token associated with it but it doesn't need the token they're just kind of using that to like drive the price up in a way i oh mean yeah God. so anyway that's, that's a whole separate yeah. thing but i think i think what all this is driving toward is this question of what do you get when you buy an nf And there's actually like a fair amount of debate on this question. I mean, I think technically when you purchase an NFT, you're getting like a string of code on the blockchain. Like you're not, you're usually not getting the IP. You're not getting trademark. You're not getting the copyright. So if you you buy like a popular 
collection of NFTs are these these the Top Shop NFTs that are like these highlights of NBA moments, like LeBron dunking or something. I mean, you could still like a video. Yeah, you can go onto YouTube and watch that as many times as you want. You could download it from endless corners of the internet. But if you purchase the NFT, you basically have you know bragging rights. You have a way of saying like I have a <sighs> very singular version of this that nobody else has, and therefore I'm cooler than you are. I mean, that's kind of what an <laughs> NFT is. Yeah. Now, when you buy the NFT, you get this unique, uh, personalized, okay, you get a one-of-a-kind digital version of a thing, whether it be a song, a GIF, a video clip, whatever. What do people usually do with it once they have it? Do they display it on like a special projector? Do they just look at it on their phones? Does it just, you know, stay on the hard drive forever? What does one do with an NFT? I I think that's another sort of interesting question. I mean, I think anyone who used to collect anything or currently collects things can sort of intuitively understand this. I mean, I collected Pogs back in the day. I don't know if any of our listeners remember (laughs) Pogs. Um, I used to collect Pokemon cards and Magic the Gathering cards. And I would put all these cards in like a binder and like show them off to my friends. And they'd be like, oh my God, you have a Black Lotus. I can't believe you got that card. Where did you find it? But with an NFT, I mean, they basically like sit in these wallets, right? Um, And so it's not like you buy an NFT and... A digital wallet. Yeah. I mean, it sits basically on the internet, right, Aaron? I mean, where else does it go when you buy one? Yeah, I've, I've talked to some people who consider themselves collectors of NFT art who have screens in their house and they display the art that way. And so they can change it out and look at whichever okay. one they want. Okay. Is that practical can for I just the pause everyday you person? Real, can, no. <laughs> can I pause you for a second and just ask, isn't it possible to get a PowerPoint projector and display art yes, on your wall without having to buy the NFT. This is where I get stuck. Help me understand. So the question is, there's also an element, not just of bragging rights that like, yes, I own this thing and I, I bought it, but it's also of supporting the creator or the artist behind it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, wanting to be a patron of the arts and like, uh-huh. so I think there's a little bit of that. And it's similar to like the people who are buying into different music or things from like YouTube creators or whatever. It's like they want to support this person because they really like the art that they create and they want to have like a more of a direct relationship with them. Yeah. So why were NFTs created? Like what problem did they solve? <laughs> it seems as if everything was going just fine in the world. Well, not fine, but like, was there a need for NFTs? I think what, what Aaron was uh, talking about earlier is it introduced scarcity in a world of digital assets, things on the internet where scarcity never existed. Like things can be reproduced, they could be pirated, they could, you know, there's endless copies of every single thing on the internet. And NFTs was saying, hey, let's introduce some scarcity there. Where there's scarcity, there will be demand. And where there's demand, people can is make it, money. Yeah. And it, another another thing that I think this is solving, Sam, is, you know, especially in the art world context, it's instead of having like a bunch of like, you know, old guys with like bushy eyebrows with monocles, like examining a Monet to figure out whether or not it's a real Monet, right? The, the NFT, like through its, <laughs> I mean, through like the blockchain, you could perfectly authenticate it. You could figure out its provenance. Like those questions that have so sort of vexed the art world about like, where did this come from? What is its chain of custody? Those things are actually solved okay. through the blockchain. I mean, I hear you, <laughs> but let's say you get your NFT Monet and it's the authentic one. If you ever want to display it on your wall, you have to print a copy of it. <laughs> right, like, it's true. just like, I don't understand. I mean, what is, 
what is preserving the authenticity of these NFTs? What even is it if you know that half the folks, at least that get NFTs, are going to reproduce them to display them digitally for their friends? Uh-huh. Right. It's, yeah. it's the knowledge in your heart. <laughs> the, blo- the blockchain lives in your heart. Uh, the no, blockchain lives in your heart. I love that. As uh, long, okay. as, as, long so, as AWS doesn't switch it off, right? Yeah. 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 Yes. yeah. Um, I think, you know, this raises a, a larger question for me whenever I see headlines about NFTs and blockchains and these new currencies and marketplaces existing just on the internet, right? Like, how is this a little novelty in the way that some folks are passing their time during the pandemic? Or is this like the way that things are just moving in all of our lives, period? You know, I've been thinking a lot, especially in the midst of the pandemic, about how a lot of things that used to be IRL in real life they are moving more and more into digital and online spaces. For instance, the workplace for a lot of us, right? And so now when I see the rise of blockchain and the rise of these NFTs, my secret elder millennial fear (laughs) is that like all of it's a sign that our entire economy is inch by inch moving into the matrix and we're going to be like living our entire existences like on some blockchain at some point before we know it. I don't know. Should I be that worried? Is this a sign of a larger trend about the digitization of like every aspect of our lives? Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's good. I think when the, (laughs) sorry, I think when the pandemic is over, a lot of this stuff will maybe not be as prominent. People will, will be busy with other stuff. So they won't be spending the same amount of time working on their, their collection of LeBron dunk clips. But at the same time, I think as we've kind of talked about a little bit, that it is a sign of, um, you know, sort of a new way of people making money and connecting with their fans and things on the Internet. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, a perfect storm of variables made this NFT moment what it is. But like crypto art's been around for many years, you know, I mean, people have been, you know, talking about basically what's an NFT, just calling it something different. Like if you're a a gamer and you like Fortnite and you Mm -hmm. buy, say, like a banana outfit for real money and then you could walk around that Fortnite game with your banana outfit, that's essentially an NFT, right? It's like Mm -hmm. a (laughs) non-fungible thing that's like on your video game character. So like in the video game world and in other spaces... I mean, this concept has, you know, basically been around for a while. It's not like the pandemic just like, you know, made this thing sort of appear out of nowhere. It's been around for a while. But um, yeah, hands down, 2021 is definitely the year when like NFT became a thing, capital A, capital T. That's for sure. I just, you know, I felt old before this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right, all right, all right. One of the things I have been seeing in this discussion of NFTs uh, is that they're, like, bad for the environment. How? It's all online. Please explain this to me. Uh, Well, um, the blockchain, or all blockchain, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all of these cryptocurrencies are created by doing really complex um, basically like math problems um, with just like heavy, heavy computing power. And every time you print something new onto a blockchain, every time you make a new NFT or do a transaction using cryptocurrency, you it requires a lot of this computing power. And so that the electricity that it's using up um, is, is like 
I think a lot of a lot of people are newly being introduced to that issue who yeah, maybe and, weren't following crypto before. And, and if and if you try to, hmm. I mean, I'm pretty new to the crypto world, but you know, I have exchanged real money for crypto and have used some of that crypto to buy NFTs just to see what this is all like, what the experience. Well, you is bought like. an NFT, Bobby? I bought. What did you buy? I, 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 well, I, I bid on a few. I think I think I, I'm not sure if I won, and I'm. I'd have to go to my wallet to. Not to, sure if you won. I I'm sorry. I'm what? clearly, I'm clearly not that invested. I, I plunked down a few bucks or two, and then I was like, oh, I'll check this later. I never got around to What's it. What's a few bucks? I want some details here. Okay, Come on, tell me. Yeah. I'll have to open up my wallet. I can't, I can't exactly remember. But anyway, the point, the point. What did you bid on? Oh, we want to judge so your taste in NFTs. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I really wanted a crypto punk. To be honest, I thought crypto punks are really crypto cool. What? They're like these little pixelated sort of heads and they all have unique characteristics i think they're all generated by ai there's aren't only like a certain number what do of they them do they're just cool looking but i couldn't <laughs> get one for less than thousands of dollars so i went onto these marketplaces and i bought um basically knockoff crypto punks so they're not part of the actual collection but they kind of look like one and they were like far and what are cheaper. you going to do with them I, i'm gonna go on a podcast and say i bought an nft and i'm gonna seem really cool <laughs> Okay, Bobby Bobby Allen sent me an image of the NFT that he bought. This it's called an it's on OpenSea. It's called a this punk. It's called a punk and it was wrapped using wrapped punk's contract. It's just a pixelated image of a dude with a beanie on and a goatee. Yeah, pretty cool, right? It's like Fred Durst. How much did you I, pay I'm, for this? I used to be a big Limp Bizkit fan, so you know. <laughs> Bobby, oh you're losing. Oh you, you keep talking, it gets worse. Oh, you're going to have to edit How that out How much did you post. pay for this? Aaron's How mortified that I, I mentioned Limp Bizkit. Fair enough. I mean, it's okay to have been a fan of Limp Bizkit, just never admit it. <laughs> never admit it, exactly. That is I the still thing I got to know how much you paid for this Okay. Image of I, dirt. I, well, 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 I, I only transferred 50 US dollars and there's various gas fees, they call it. And, and so I didn't pay more than $50. I'll say less than $50, but I'd have to look up the exact transaction. Let me tell history. you something, Bobby. Yeah. Let me tell you something, Bobby. You spent 49 <laughs> too much dollars. <laughs> Okay. You can enough. expense it. It was, it was worth research. Yeah, I'm expensing this to NPR, so I um, I hope I hope the okay. network knows that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> to close this NFT segment, can I read you both um, some wonderful tweets we got from It's Been a Minute listeners? Um, this week, we tweeted at our audience. We said, "What's an NFT?" <laughs> Wrong answers only. We got some really good ones. Can I read a few? <clears throat> oh yeah, please. Natural free range taco. <laughs> Non-fancy tux, nice. new financial trap, non-functional tchotchkes, NPR's finest talk show, uh, new falcon teeth, nacho-free taco place, nutmeg, flat water, taffy, non-factual truth, and my favorite, just a nice funky time. That's great. I like that. I love this game. Oh, great. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. On that note, we are going to take a break and then play a game with Aaron and Bobby that does not require any NFT knowledge at all. You're listening to IBAM on NPR, where we have just discussed NFTs. Stay with us. Are you an audacious entrepreneur with a world-changing idea? Then join us this May for the virtual How I Built This Summit, hosted by me. We'll have interviews with some of the best-known entrepreneurs out there and community-building sessions to meet other creative thinkers like you. Thank you to Dell Technologies, a supporting sponsor of the How I Built This Summit. For more information, head to summit.npr.org. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, joined this weekend by a lovely panel of two all-star tech reporters, Aaron Griffith, tech reporter at The New York Times, Bobby Allen, tech reporter at NPR. Uh, thank you both for being here. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having me. me. All right. This game is called Who Said That? Who said that? Bobby, Who you've played that? this before? Yeah, I'm on quite an impressive losing streak. I'm definitely the underdog here. It's okay. Explain the game for Aaron. Okay. So a quote will be read to you, um, a quote that is timely and came from the news recently, and you have to say exactly who said the quote. There you go. It is so simple, so lo-fi. There are no buzzers. There are no timers. I'm bad at keeping score, but it doesn't matter because whoever wins gets nothing but bragging rights, and even those are questionable. Shall we? Let's do it. I might be in the wrong answers only department, but... (laughs) Uh 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 All right, this first quote for who said that. Tell me who said this. I just got this feeling, man, that this summer, it's about to be a white boy summer. Who said that? Ch- uh, Ch- uh, what's his name? Yep. Go uh, with it. Go with it. Uh, Chet Hanks? Yes, sir. So Chet Hanks, son of Tom Hanks, uh, the adult rapper who is still waiting for a hit, um, he has been on social media this week saying that it's going to be a white boy summer. He followed up by saying, quote, I'm not talking about Trump, you know, NASCAR type white. I'm talking about, you know, me, um, John B., Jack Harlow type white boy summer. You know what I mean? Let me know if you guys uh, can vibe with that. Oh, Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. He also laid out some rules for white boys and men hoping to take part in the white boy summer. He said, quote, No plaid shirts because the bros can't be looking like a picnic table out here. No Sperry topsiders. No calling girls smoke shows. And no anything salmon colored. Burn that S, he said. Bobby, you are our resident white boy for this episode. Can I get some comment from you? Well, that made me immediately jump on Urban Dictionary and say, smoke show? I was just like, what is that? I'm afraid to know what that even means. I mean, (laughs) how do y'all feel about this? I'm on board with the the no topsiders rule. <laughs> I knew Aaron would be the Chet Hanks apologist. I just had a feeling. <laughs> the rest of it is so cringe. You can't see me, but I'm like kind of doubled over cringing like, yee. <laughs> uh, who got that point? Bobby. I'll take it. I'll take it. Bobby got the point. Next quote. You can just tell me what we're talking about with this one. The quote is, 
The play will, for the first time, take audiences deeper behind the scenes of a landmark event that previously was shrouded in mystery. This is in reference to a stage play version of a very popular book-slash-TV series that wrapped a little while ago. Oh, I saw these book headlines. TV series. One of the biggest shows of our modern era, at least the last decade Wait. or so. Mm, no. I need another clue. One of the biggest shows. Red Wedding. Red oh. Wedding. Game of Thrones? Yeah. So that quote comes from the official description of the forthcoming dramatic stage show Spectacular based on the world of Game of Thrones. Hmm. Also, we should point out that George R.R. R. Martin, the author who made the Game of Thrones series, he has yet to finish his long-awaited like Game of Thrones follow-up book. Oh, yeah. That's not I done saw yet. people complaining so. about that because he, he signed some new TV deal or with, with one of the streaming services or something, and people were like, do the book! speaking of a high stakes game of thrones this game of who said that is tied up one to one this last quote is for all the marbles are y'all ready yes it is a fill in the blank here we go as an innovative brand that strives to push the envelope and do the right thing blank knows it may not please everyone all of the time but decisions about what products to put the swoosh on (laughs) belong to blank nike nike yes who said it first or loudest either or might have been it might have been simultaneously check the tapes we have to check the tapes okay yeah i'm gonna give it to aaron all right fine wow bobby cheer up charlie (laughs) (laughs) so this quote comes from nike Responding to a really, really weird drama over the so-called Satan shoes. I'm going to try to back up and explain this as thoroughly as I can in 45 seconds. Good luck. (laughs) So, queer rapper Lil Nas X released a music video this past week for his new song called Montero slash Call Me By Your Name. The most iconic scene from this music video... Uh, has Little Nas X sliding down what seems to be a 20-mile-long stripper pole <laughs> from heaven down to hell, body-winding the whole way. When Little Nas X in the music video gets to hell, he proceeds to twerk on the devil and then snap his neck. Um, as you can guess, a lot of people had a lot of thoughts about this song and this music video and Little Nas X. But the thing that came out of all of this that might cause a court case is that this company, MSCHF, this week in collaboration with Lil Nas X, they released a modified pair of Nike Air Max 97s that they say have drops of blood in them. Hmm. They're called Satan Shoes. There you go. (laughs) It's just like such beautiful trolling. Like, so Lil Nas X and then this company, Mischief, their whole thing is just like stunts and trolling and kind of like just, you know, getting attention and like hacking attention in various ways. And like to combine those two forces has basically had their intended effect of making people lose their minds. And so I think it's been amusing to watch. (laughs) So these Satan shoes, 
They're black and red, of course, <laughs> and they have drops of human blood in the soles and a bronze pentagram adorning the laces. Let me tell you what. I know who's not buying these shoes. Sam Sanders. <laughs> I am too superstitious. Not gonna, would, y'all, would y'all ever wear these shoes? I'm going to buy these shoes, watch some Game of Thrones, and then purchase a few NFTs and just call it a night. How's that? <laughs> this game is over. Bobby, the negative energy that you brought to this game led to the results of you losing. Next time, try a better attitude. Aaron, congratulations. You won. Thank you. I feel proud. I'd like to thank all the little people that helped me along the way. I'm so glad that you uh, both hung out this week. I had a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking with y'all. And I feel like I understand a little bit of the internet more after chatting with you both. Uh, Aaron Griffith, tech reporter at The New York Times, and Bobby Allen, tech reporter for NPR. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week... Listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hey, Sam. It's Maggie from Columbus, Ohio. And the best part of my week this week is actually about to happen. I have been a track athlete pretty much my entire life. But today, I get to coach my first meet. Hi, Sam. This is Christy from Charleston, South Carolina. And the best thing that has happened to me this week is that I have four years of sobriety, one day at a time. Hey, Sam. This is Jan from Battleground, Washington. I'm retiring this week after 40 years as an RN. I have a lot of traveling to do. Hi, Sam. This is Lee from Encinitas, California. And the best thing that's happened to me this week I've been staying with my mom and dad because I celebrated my grandma's 100th birthday. I hadn't seen my parents or my grandma in a year since December 2019. And my dad's margaritas are as good as I remember. And my grandma looks amazing. I am sitting in my car just after I got my second COVID shot. And later today, I will be driving with my family to uh, have a Passover Seder at my parents' house in person. What a difference a year makes. Hi, Sam. This is Shelly in Seattle. And the best part of my week was because my wife and I have both been vaccinated for COVID, we were able to have our son over to our house for a Passover Seder on Saturday. We still had to join with the rest of our group over Zoom, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel that Before too long, we'll all be able to be at the same table again. It made it a pretty good week. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Love your show. Have a good week. Satyrs and margaritas and 100 birthday parties. Good stuff all around. Thanks to all those listeners you just heard. Maggie, Christy, Jan, Lee, Nathan, and Shelly. Listeners, you can also be a part of this segment. Send us your best thing at any time throughout any week. Just record your voice on your phone and then send that voice memo to me via email, samsanders at npr.org. That email is samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Danae West, Andrea Gutierrez, and Sylvie Douglas. Our intern is Liam McBain. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. But she took this week off. She deserved it. Filling in for her is Uri Berliner. Uri, thanks for filling in this week. We appreciate you. 
Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.